to a Hope 103.2 podcast. This week we see a message to the Pharisees. You remember Jesus is grappling with two groups. He's got his followers, they don't seem to be quick in getting out. And he's got the Pharisees and they don't seem to be quick in coming in. And so Luke chapter 16 is divided into two parts. There is a message to the insiders, the disciples, to go out. And there is a message to the outsiders, the Pharisees, to come in. Now, I want to prove to you at the start of this message why the parable is directed to Pharisees. And you discover it in 1614. We finished talking to disciples, and verse 14, the Pharisees pipe up and they sneer at Jesus. And he said to them, verse 15, and if you had a red letter Bible, you would discover that everything down to verse 31 is pretty well directed to the Pharisees. All those strange verses, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and then the story of 19 to 31 is directed to the Pharisees. That, I think, is the first proof. But the second proof that Jesus is speaking to Pharisees is, did you notice as the reading was being read, seven references to Abraham. Those of you who are old enough to remember the old song, Rock My Soul in the Bosom of Abraham, I think the phrase, bosom of Abraham, comes from Luke 16. And this, of course, is proof that Jesus is talking to Pharisees because the Jews regarded their hope as to be with Abraham. And Jesus is explaining to the Pharisees that their human links to Abraham, their national links, their cultural links to Abraham are no good for salvation and are no good for eternity. Now, that's the two parts of Luke 16, but the parable, the story, also has two parts. The first half of the parable is this very surprising reversal. Why is it that the rich man goes down, and why is it that the poor man goes up? Visibly, you would expect the opposite if you were a Jew. That's the first, a surprising reversal. The second half is a sufficient revelation. Jesus announces that there is sufficient information for everybody to believe, if they're willing. Now, I want to ask you to work, because I know that there are some Sunday mornings where you just tune off, I do. The brain disappears, and you tune in a few minutes later, perhaps an hour later, and come back to what's being said. I want to ask you to concentrate for a minute, what is verse 14 to 18 all about? Why do we have these funny verses? And I want to suggest to you that verses 14 to 18 introduce exactly the two points I've mentioned. A surprising reversal and then a sufficient revelation. So look at 16.14. The Pharisees are introduced. They're very wealthy. They're very pleased with themselves. They're very popular with people. Lots of gullible people think the Pharisees are wonderful. Look at God's verdict in verse 15. Detestable in God's sight. That is a very surprising reversal. It's as if the Pharisees are all lined up like bishops and everybody is revering and saying, how wonderful, how wonderful. And Jesus steps in and says, you're all detestable in God's sight. It's a surprising reversal. And that's, of course, the first half of the story, a surprising reversal. And then in 1616 you see that Jesus announces that the law and the prophets were proclaimed till John. Since that time, the kingdom is being preached 
and everyone's forcing their way into it, and nothing of the law has been removed or ever will be removed. It is all functional and effective and useful until eternity. And this, I think, is a very good reminder of what we're talking about. There is a sufficient revelation given by God for all the world. And an illustration of it is verse 18. In case you sort of tune out as Jesus talks about the law, he suddenly comes in with an illustration, divorce, remarriage, a very pertinent reminder that the law stands and it's dangerous to break. And uh, this may have been a special word to the Pharisees, some of whom were very lax in the subject of marriage and divorce, but uh, it's certainly a clear word of a sufficient revelation. And that's the second half of the story, where Jesus says in the second half, verses 27 to 31, that there is a sufficient revelation for people today to believe and to live. So the two issues in verses 14 to 18 are the two issues in 19 to 31. And I mention that to you because sometimes we read the verses in the middle of the two stories and we scratch our head and we say, well, somebody was mucking around when they put all this together and this is a real hodgepodge, isn't it? It doesn't have any logical flow to it. But actually those verses introduce the two themes in a very powerful way. Remember, I reminded you last week in 1.3 of Luke that Luke himself says he's written an orderly account. So don't be surprised if everything doesn't have a place and it's one of our jobs to think carefully about what that place might be. Well, let's look at the surprising reversal in the first half of the parable. It's not often called a parable because it doesn't seem to be talking about something fictitious, but it is something realistic. But there is a surprising reversal in the first half of the story. There is a man in verse 19 who is rich and he's well-dressed and he lives in luxury. And to the Jews of the day who considered that outward blessing was a sign of God's approval, they would have said, that man's blessed by God. God is with that man. And then suddenly we come to verse 20. And there is a man called Lazarus. And he's a beggar with sores, no doubt placed at the rich man's gate in order to get something. There doesn't seem to be any sign that he gets anything except a little bit of comfort from the dogs. And then we see that both men die, verse 22. And there is a very great surprise for anybody who thinks that there is just one destination for everybody up ahead. Because Jesus, who is the expert on the future says that there is heaven, verse 22, and there is hell, verse 23. You and I don't like the subject, but we seek to be faithful to what Jesus tells us about. And so there are these two places. And there is a surprise, as I say, because the poor man goes up to Abraham's side and the rich man goes down to hell. Don't fall for the immediate trap that rich is wrong because Abraham was a very rich man. He had enormous herds and property. And you'll see that in verse 22, Abraham is in heaven. And in verse 23, the rich man is in hell. So there's a rich man in heaven and there's a rich man in hell. It's obviously not that riches are by nature the killer. 
And don't be concerned, as I say, that heaven is described as Abraham's side, because this is a special phrase which is probably designed to comfort the Pharisees or to challenge the Pharisees, for whom being with Abraham was a very desirable goal. And when Jesus talked like this, it must have greatly annoyed the Pharisees, first of all, that the rich man would go down, uh, and then secondly, it must have annoyed them that the poor man would go up. And the rise of the poor man is described very beautifully. There's no mention of burial. There's just the angels carrying him up to Abraham's side. And the description of the rich man is very sobering, buried in hell, in torment. I want to say again to you, in case you find yourself embarrassed or uncomfortable with uh, any talk of hell or suffering, that the bulk of the teaching of the Scriptures on hell has come from the mouth of the kindest, sanest, finest person the world has ever seen, and that is from Jesus. I understand that 11 out of the 12 passages which talk of hell as a place of torment come from the mouth of Jesus. And I can only assume that he spoke this way because he really does love people. The talk of hell as a place of suffering is not the invention, therefore, of mad medieval monks, nor is it the invention of raving fundamentalist preachers who think that it's helpful to scare people. The teaching on hell predominantly comes from the mouth of Jesus And the very person who spoke most and died that people might not go there is the person that we must take our lead from on this subject. We uh, had a series at St. Thomas's some years ago, I think I've reminded you of this before, where we looked at what are we saved from. And there were three weeks we looked at being saved from wrath one week, from judgment one week, and from hell one week. And you would expect that that would have been a very gloomy three weeks. Not at all. It was absolutely wonderful. It put so much of our problems in perspective. It was a time of great rejoicing and thanksgiving as people recognized the great Savior that we have. And uh, it explains, of course, every doctrine. Nothing really makes sense in Christianity if there is no such place as hell. Jesus needn't have come. He needn't have lived. He needn't have died. There's no special news about the resurrection since if there's no hell, everybody's fine anyway. Nothing makes sense without the backcloth of hell. And therefore, it's a very important doctrine. Well, as I say, we see this surprising reversal in the fate of these two men, and there's no explanation given yet. But the first thing that Jesus wants his listeners to realize in verse 24 is that there is a terrible and irreversible gulf between the two. The rich man calls out to Abraham to have Lazarus come from heaven to hell with just enough water on the tip of his finger to cool his tongue. It's a very graphic description of the desire for relief, isn't it? And Jesus is using an idea that we understand, an idea that makes sense to us, an idea that we recoil from. And there is a very serious aspect to Christianity, 
as well as the peace of Christianity and the joy and the forgiveness and the praise and the fellowship and all the wonderful things, there's a very serious aspect. And can I say that I am suspicious of Christians or churches who are predominantly, if not permanently, given to praise and not the serious message of judgment because nothing really makes sense without the two. And uh, if there isn't a serious and unpopular element to the message, I think the devil is at work. Because there is a serious and unpopular message when Jesus is at work. And uh, people who ask Christians to drop the subject are like people who want lifesavers and firemen and doctors to just say positive things all the time. It's impossible. It's irresponsible. And therefore, although it's a difficult thing, remember it's a loving thing to put the context of the good news on the backdrop of the bad news. Well, why do these two men go different ways? Verse 25 doesn't seem to help us on the surface, does it? Because Abraham replies, son, rich man, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he's comforted here and you're in agony. It looks on the surface of verse 25 as though it's just a matter of getting the opposite in the afterlife to what you got in this life. And that can't be right, because if that's the case, let's give away everything we've got so that we can have everything in the next world. It looks on the surface of verse 25, doesn't it, as though God just swaps our fortunes. But if you keep reading, you'll see what the real cause is. All we know from this first answer of Abraham's, especially in verse 26, is that there is a chasm, a gulf between heaven and hell, which is unbridgeable. That's why Hebrews 9 says... It's appointed to people to die, and then comes judgment fixed. And that's, incidentally, friends, one of the reasons why we oughtn't to think of praying for the dead, because when people die, their condition, their future, their eternity is fixed, wonderfully fixed. And so an elderly man came to me, his wife has died, and uh, he quite tearfully said, you know, should I be praying for my wife? And I said, no, she's fine. You can give thanks for her. She was a believer. There's nothing that your prayers could add to her bliss, to her condition. And that's what this uh, particular verse also reminds us, that when a person goes from this world to the next world, it's a fixed thing. Well, I want to come to the reason for the reversal, and that takes us to our second thing this morning, and that is a sufficient revelation. If the first request is for relief, the second request is, is for the relatives. Verse 27, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they'll not also come to this place of torment. It looks on the surface as though the man, the rich man, is a nice man because he's concerned for his brothers. But we need to remember that he's sort of interested in his own circle again. The very thing that Jesus was warning of in chapter 14. It doesn't seem to be a great concern for the world, although I wouldn't want to make too much of the fact that he's concerned for his brothers. Jesus points out that if a man on the other side of the grave was in hell and could get a message back to this world, the message would be, don't come here. And if a man on the other side of the grave was in heaven 
and could get a message to the people of this world, it would be, be sure you come here. Isn't that interesting? We're very interested today, aren't we, in messages from the other side of the grave. The Bible says that if a person arrives in heaven and could get a message back to the earth, they would say, don't let anything come between you and Jesus so that you definitely arrive where I am. And if a person could send a message from hell to us, they would say, don't let anything come between you and Jesus so you don't end up where I am. Verse 28 is very interesting, isn't it? The man in hell wants people in the world to be warned of hell. Abraham's reply, however, is that they have sufficient, verse 29, revelation. They have Moses and the prophets. They've got a Bible. How did Abraham get into heaven? He listened to the word of God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham, here's the key, listen very carefully to this, Abraham was a listener to the word of God. And when he listened to the word of God and believed it, he was saved. And he was saved forever. He happened to have a very good life, not without its troubles. The Lazarus character in this story happened to have a very difficult life, full of troubles. But they both seemed to be listeners to the Word of God. And that's the reason that they believe and live. Well, the brothers back home have a Bible, says Abraham. Their problem is not lack of information. Their problem is lack of inclination. The rich man has one final request. He doesn't think the Bible is going to be good enough. He says, verse 30, no, Father Abraham, let someone from the dead go and then they will repent. Do a miracle. Send a man from the dead and they'll repent. What they need, Abraham, is something bigger than the Bible. If they could have something that was a proof that they couldn't resist, if someone were to rise from the dead, they would believe. And Abraham says this very solemn word, verse 31, if they're deaf to the Bible, they'll be deaf to a resurrection. Now, friends, Abraham's not being unkind. Please don't think that. God is not being unkind. God would give and gives everything necessary for the believer. Whatever a person needs, he gives. He gives us a creation that we might see and understand a big creator. He puts inside us a conscience so that we know we are accountable to someone. He walks into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. He puts into the world a Bible, a record. He gives people reminders, reminders, reminders. There's an enormous amount of information. And one commentator says this, I think it's very interesting. If seeing and hearing an apparition would have brought the brothers to repentance... You can be sure God would have provided. Every room they sat in, every street they walked down would have been alive with apparitions, but apparitions would not have helped them. And now I say again, Jesus, you see, has put his finger on the issue. What is the difference between these two men? The rich man says, if you warn my brothers, all will be well. Abraham says they've got a warning. The rich man says, if you give a warning and a miracle, all will be well. And Abraham says, the problem is they don't want anything. 
The problem is that they've got their fingers in their ears and their hands over their eyes and they don't want anything. And that's what it's like with the Pharisees. It's such a terrible group that Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees. They don't want anything. They've got their Old Testament. It hasn't brought them to faith. They've got the Son of God in front of them. He hasn't brought them to faith. They've got miracles. That hasn't brought them to faith. It's a terrible, terrible group that Jesus is having to deal with. And the only way that he can lovingly wake them up is to talk to them about something terrible to come and that the obligation is on them to respond to what they've received. Well, that's the problem, of course, with the rich man as well. The rich man was a man who did not listen. The first symptom of his deafness was that he was a man of this world. All he was interested in was this world. He was getting everything that he was interested in right now. He was throwing his heart, mind, soul and strength into this world. His treasure was here. Of course, when his uh, time and his energy ran out, everything was gone. The second symptom that this rich man was deaf to God is that he was deaf to the neighbour outside his gate. He was not believing commandment one and therefore he was not believing commandment two. He did not love God. He did not love his neighbor. And this is the problem for the rich man. It's not that he had money. The problem is that he was deaf, deliberately deaf, to the word of God. Now, friends, the way into God's heaven, the way into God's feast or celebration is not unfair. I know that many people think that God is unfair. The Bible says again and again that God has given everything we need in order to believe. His word is open to everybody. And then he adds the resurrection and people don't believe. 1631 would be a great text for Easter Day, wouldn't it? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. But the problem, you see, is not the invitations. It's not the information. The problem is the refusals. I hope as we study this story on this particular Sunday morning, you won't be completely discouraged by it. It's full of very great comfort. It's true it's a warning, but it's also full of very wonderful things. Uh, Here is this man, Lazarus, who is going through a very difficult time, and yet he's right with God. He has eternal life. He is heading to heaven. He will be carried, as it were, by angels into the very center of heaven for eternity. And the reason is not because he was poor. It's not because he missed out in this world. It's not because he was a nice guy. It's not because he was patient. It's not because he had no friends but dogs. The reason is he listened to the word of God. That's the implication. John 5.24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not come into judgment, but has crossed from death to life. It's a very wonderful thing. And for the bulk of the people here this morning, you say to yourself, this is wonderful news. I've just heard the message over the years. I've believed the message by the grace of God. I have eternal life. My life is difficult. Yes, I have eternal life. It's one of the wonderful things of being a Christian. There's great comfort in this section. 
But there is also a serious challenge, and we can't miss the serious challenge, that the person who blocks their ears to the Word of God, what more can Jesus say or do? What, what more can I say to the people who are here this morning who've been listening to me for months and years and decades and don't believe? What more can I say to them? It's a terrible thing for the unbeliever to suddenly find themselves at the end of their life in such a destiny as Jesus explains here in Luke 16. But believers also, we're in danger of censoring God, aren't we? We often block our ears. We become selective listeners. We say to God, well, I'm working on my kingdom at the moment, so yours just has to wait in the background. Or we say, I'm um, actually committed to my thinking on this issue, and I'm not committed to your thinking, I'm committed to mine, and so we become selective listeners. Or we say to God, I'm committed to my family. My family comes before your family. Those are real issues for us here, aren't they? We're all in danger here of putting our kingdom before his and our thoughts before his and our will before his and our family before his. And when there comes a clash between the two, what we want wins. That's selective listening. The great danger with selective listening is that those people very quickly get deafer. So Jesus is warning in this passage with very great love for us. He obviously wants the Pharisees to be afraid so that they might turn and live. He loves the Pharisees enough to warn them. The Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That applies to the unbeliever. Hear the message of Jesus today. The devil says to you, wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow will be fine. And then tomorrow comes and he says, tomorrow. But the Bible says today. And for those who are Christians, the bulk of the congregation here this morning... God's word again and again comes today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Well, let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very sobering but special story on the lips of the Lord Jesus. We're conscious, our Father, of how difficult it is to get people who are unwilling to be willing and we pray that you would work in their lives to turn their minds and hearts. To give them the humility and the hunger to know you. And to listen to you and to live. We pray that you would help us to go on in patience and perseverance and love for these people. And we also pray for ourselves that you would forgive us for when we have turned a deaf ear to your word for where we've gone our own way and decided to do exactly what we want. In the small and the large, we pray you'll forgive us. And please give to us again the humility and the honesty to be good listeners to your word, that we might be quick to hear it today and quick to practice it today. We thank you and we commit ourselves to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.